When it comes to investing, retirement, taxes, healthcare, and estate planning, the decisions you make today can greatly affect the quality of life for you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight and unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your retirement and financial future. Good news. You found Premier Retirement Radio with Jeff Fogan. Jeff is the founder of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, and he's been guiding people financially and into retirement for 30 years. So get ready for an hour of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. And now here's Jeff Vogan and Jeff Shade. Thank you so much. Welcome to Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name's Jeff Shade, and I'm just here to ask the questions, but you know the words of wisdom and solid advice come from the other Jeff in this radio program. That would be Jeff Ogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Hey, Jeff, how's this weekend treating you so far, my friend? Well, so far, so good. It's always great to be with you and the listeners and, you know, just start the weekend off this way. Yeah, right. Well, we've got a lot to talk about this being the uh, first weekend of February already, Jeff. And earnings season is upon us here. That's going to be coming out, I think, within the next couple of weeks. We've had a few earnings results so far. So what is the earnings report or what is the earnings season and what would that realistically mean to our investors? Well, I mean, earnings, it does kind of look at a backwards look at what has happened in, in the last year or so. You know, I talked about this last week and prior weeks that the earnings are coming in dismally low. For example, uh, yeah, I've been looking at uh, earnings after earnings, you know, are down like one, two, three, five, eight percent from a year ago, yet the stocks are up 25 or 30 percent. In fact, some people have just, there's one big railroad company, CSX, I've been watching that stock for a while, and they've got an eight percent decrease in revenues, yet they say they're the strongest heartbeat of America type thing. I mean, railroads do a lot of transport, and of course, when you're uh, thinking, you know, oil and trucking has gotten more and more expensive, you think the railroads would have, you know, been launching the stratosphere as far as earnings, growth, revenues, et cetera, et cetera, but they're not. I mean, that's just, this is one example of one I was just looking at yesterday, but, you know, earnings are down 5%, revenues are down 8%, outlook is still to be less and less, yet just in the last few weeks, you know, the stock goes up straight through the roof. I mean, it's it's gone up, uh, let's say just in the last month, it's gone up about 3%. If you look at the last year, it's gone up about 20%. If you look at the last two years, it's held relatively even, yet earnings are less and less. So, I mean, and again, that's just one. Intel, very disappointing earnings uh, recently. That stock uh, was really on a roll, thinking that they were going to get a piece of the AI business, but they're really not. They're kind of a chip maker for PCs, and PC sales are down. That's not a good economic outlook. So we've got all these economic factors playing into the fact that people are not spending more money, but big market makers and banks will continue to buy stock. So it makes it look like the economy's great. Earnings are still very disappointing. You know, last year, the average earnings for the S&P 500 was 0.8%. And now there was not even 1% growth, yet the stocks went up 30 plus and they're still going up. And we're not seeing the earnings tick up in a big way. Now we've seen NVIDIA get launched in the stratosphere because they got a bunch of pre-orders for their chips. But then again, we've got AMD, another uh, company that's going to take a lot of that market share away from them. And, you know, I, I think these stocks are just overblown and the earnings are not supporting anything. But, you know, here I am thinking, you know, fundamentals actually have something to do with the market. You know, we're talking about earnings season. Does it matter? No, it doesn't even matter. What matters is, hey, if there's a market maker going to pick five or six stocks, a market makers, meaning the JP Morgans, the Wells Fargo's, the Morgan Stanley's, you know, and the, the big banks that uh, basically been bailed out of all their banking problems a year ago have taken all that money that the Fed gave them, basically bought all their crappy assets, gave them a bunch of money, and they've been buying stock with it. So the market makers have been buying stock, basically cheerleading the market, making stocks go up when 
in reality, we're not seeing the growth. I mean, look at the, I mean, we'll talk about this in a minute. I just saw an article that you're just showing me earlier right. the, about all the layoffs that are happening. I mean, I just read uh, earlier this week too, uh, UPS going to lay off something like 20,000 workers. Uh, FedEx is restructuring their whole program. I mean, that's a good short sell right now. They're losing money. So everything from railroads to shipping to just everything that looks like a consumer is doing well, looks like the consumer is doing badly. And the only thing that's getting any traction is the AI hype, which is an AI craze, which reminds me so much of the dot-coms that bombed because there was really no earnings. It was all just hype and stuff. So I'm, I'm a little worried that the earnings have not come in very well. Now, back to the earnings and the whole argument about earnings meaning something is, you know, everybody's worried last year when the market's going up and earnings are continually going down. And by the way, we just got the 20th straight month of leading economic indicators declined. 20 straight months, the leading economic indicators of 10 different economic indicators, it's an index, LEI, you can look it up, down 20 straight months. Whenever it's gone down more than 12, there's been a, it's ended in a bad scene, recession, market correction or crash. So uh, we've got that going for us. Yet Janet Yellen gets on the TV last weekend and says, oh, we're in the best economy we've ever seen. Uh, everything's good. People are flush with cash. Not true. There is no savings. Savings has gone from like 30% down to 4%. Spending has gone up. Savings has gone down. Defaults are higher than they've ever been on credit cards. There's not a lot of things that fundamentally support the market where it's at, but we've got all this stuff about we're looking, well, we're pricing the stocks right now due to forward earnings because we think the Fed's going to lower interest rates six or eight times and the inflation's going to magically just drop to 2% and stay there because why? Just because they can report it as so. And then, you know, banks really aren't going to get squeezed next year because of the bad debt that they were able to put off from a year ago when they were almost going out of business. Remember this, this uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Renaissance or some of those other banks that were getting in trouble, they bailed them out. They bailed the big banks out by basically buying all their crappy assets as Fed did. That was basically QE to banks. And uh, they've, they've been faking it like they've been doing well. The market says, yeah, but based on future earnings, we should pay 30 or 40% more for these stocks. Based on what future earnings? You know, last year we had flat earnings and this year we're coming in first quarters looking at the, the last quarter of last year. You know, when the stock market went up 10 or 15% just before the end of the year and it's still gone up a few more percent in January and we've got no earnings growth. I mean, overall, no earnings growth. There's a company here and there that's laid off a bunch of people a year ago and we've got some decent earnings. You know, I think the Google and the Meta and the, the big uh, stocks are still, you know, hanging in there with earnings, hanging in there with, you know, what they expect earnings, but the growth isn't 30 or 40% a year like it should be based on their price or based on their price earnings ratio or even based on their forward outlook other than what is made up as, well, our forward outlook says uh, all these companies will be making 30 or 40% more next year. Why? Because interest rates might go down. Why? Because the consumer is going to all of a sudden find money to spend. Why? Because businesses only have to pay three or 4% on their loans instead of six. Maybe that'll help, but I just don't believe that the earnings season that we've been through or are going through still is enough of a kicker to make us believe in this market. It really is scary. The only thing that's making this market work is the fact that there's a lot of cheerleading going on and there's more buyers than sellers and it's pumping it up. But it, it really reminds me of the dot bomb bubble. It reminds me of the banking bubble in 08. And uh, we've seen a lot of chart action recently, just like preceded those two big corrections. And so I'm a little worried. I think earnings season has not been and doesn't seem to be as robust as I would have hoped in order to support the uh, recent run-up in the market. 
And even people having a positive outlook for the year, I think is a little bit, it's just not really supported by fundamentals. But then again, who needs fundamentals? I don't know. I'm an old fundamental guy. I went to college, learned about finance, learned about fundamentals, know how to do math, know how to understand earnings and growth. And I can see all that stuff from an economic standpoint. But honestly, since they've been playing around with QE and this modern monetary theory where it's just print money whenever you want to and, you know, fake it and just tell everybody everything's good, doesn't really leave room for fundamentals. So it's a day trader's dream, really, because you can play momentum. But when we're doing block trades for long term and trying to, you know, manage you know money when there's supposed to be long-term growth and fundamentals that support it, which would indicate a good time to have some exposure to the market. There's not. It's just so risky. It could go either way in big volumes at any time. And, you know, if you don't have a paycheck, I don't think the stock market's a good place to play right now. Or if you're not going to have a paycheck for very much longer, I think uh, now's a great time to take profits and kind of come to the sidelines and let these earnings shake out because they'll eventually, they've got to eventually feed into some sense of sanity about how much we'll pay for stocks or overpay for stocks. You know, like I say, if, if you still have a paycheck, if you're 30 or 40, you know, why not take this ride? Keep on dollar cost averaging in your 401 K's and stuff. But if you're trying to protect assets, this market's kind of scary. Most of our clients, I think probably the majority of our listeners are either getting to retire because this is called the Retirement Planning Show, right? So right. Uh, premier retirement. <laughs> so if you're already retired or getting ready to, I would say, you know, look at this market with some big time caution. And I honestly, I would only be buying the three or four stocks that all the banks keep pumping up. And man, as soon as they show weakness, man, bail hard and fast. And, you know, don't think that a diversified portfolio of stocks is gonna gonna win because they won't. Last year, 85% of stocks were flat and only 15 were, actually no, 15 stocks actually made the entire gain of the S&P 500. If you look at some of the recent up days in the market, only four or five stocks made up the entire growth of the index on the Qs, which is the NASDAQ or even the S&P 500. And the breadth is horrible. You've got the uh, Russell 2000, which is really more of the value stocks, the uh, smaller and mid-cap uh, companies, a lot of those that really tell us where the economy is, where the market should be heading. And there is a tremendous lag in recovery on those stocks compared to those five or six, you know, magnificent, well, it used to be the magnificent seven, but I, I think Apple's been kind of flat and Tesla's been uh, getting hammered lately. So we've really got kind of the fab five, I think now. But anyway, I, I just think the earnings, it's been fun to see, but you know, what we're seeing is after the earnings, even these companies are saying, uh-oh, we need to lay off people. I mean, how many do you want to talk about? You know, I mean, eBay, Levi's, Macy's, I mean, uh, banks, everybody's laying off people. Yeah, and talking about that unemployment, and I want to get into this a little bit more. As far as technology goes, I mean, Google has laid off hundreds of its workers on its hardware and its voice assistants and its engineering teams. Microsoft has laid off about 1,500 or actually around 1,900 jobs. TikTok, Amazon-owned company, Salesforce. Salesforce shed something like 7,350 workers. On the retail side, eBay, REI, Levi's, Macy's, they've all laid off people. As far as the technology side goes, they say one of the reasons that they have laid off is to invest in artificial intelligence. And you, if I hear you correctly, are likening artificial intelligence, at least at this point, to the dot-com bust and boom. Do you think that artificial intelligence has the same weak points to uh, suffer the same consequences? Well, I, you know, I think there is. I think there's too many. Well, I think people are all loading up on one or two stocks in the AI business. And I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, ancillary companies that do services that support the big growth in AI, which will, in fact, I think, replace a, a workforce. Here's what I haven't seen. And I did see some uh, recent statistics about how much money that these people are saving by laying off people are actually putting back into R&D for AI. And it's not that much. I mean, the, the numbers are pathetic and very low compared to what it was even during the Internet bubble. And I don't remember the, the the big numbers, but it seemed like it was like 20 to 25% on a ratio basis, about 25% of what would be normal to try to 
put into R&D or development for these technologies. The companies, I believe, are trying more to reduce their overhead by laying off people where if they don't have people to work on this, an AI chip can't make its own self, right? You got to have somebody program it to make it. So by laying off all these people, they're not able to probably have the manpower and the support that it would take to grow the AI technology as well as they could if they kept all those people on and redeploy them into different areas of, well, hopefully they have the people in, in the right areas of expertise. But, you know, what are they dropping in order to focus on the AI? And do they actually, are they actually putting more money into the AI uh, craze? I don't think so. I think they're putting more money into buying their own stocks back. They're They're uh, trying to make their earnings look better so they can actually look like they're ticking up instead of continually going down. Quarter after quarter, we see companies like Apple. I mean, their earnings are getting worse and growth is not where it should be. And it's worse than expected. And, you know, they keep revising all these things down. And, you know, people get excited during earnings season because, you know, 50 or 60 or even 80% of the companies beat estimates. Beat estimates of what? An 8% down to really revised earnings uh, estimate from a year ago? When the market went up, Janet Yellen and everybody in the White House and all the people, powers that be, the politicians all tell us that keep voting for us, keep us in because the economy's never been better. Binomics works, it's never been better. Like, really? Nobody has savings. Everybody's paying more for food and gas. By the way, gas was going down for a minute and made some of the uh, recent inflation numbers look better. But uh, we've just seen that tick up the last few days, especially with all this uh, conflict in the Middle East. That's going to cause some problems. You know, shipping oil's got to go around the long way now because they want, don't want to float their uh, you know tankers through war zones, and uh, that's going to continue to put pressure on the price of oil. You know, I I think you know that shorting oil and you know looking for that downside was here and gone in just the last very small uh, window of opportunity. I think it's going back up again. And the charts show that it is. The prices are showing that it is. So inflation looks like it's ticking up. And if uh, the Fed says, oh, well, because all these companies really aren't making earnings, we got to lower interest rates to help the stock market. The stock market is so overpriced. It is priced to perfection as if interest rates have already gone down and as if earnings have returned to normal. And they haven't. So again, there's no fundamentals driving the market. I get scared to uh, jump on a train that has, in my opinion, just momentum, but no fuel no program to keep it on the tracks. I I just don't think that the market can stay on the tracks very much longer, especially with what we're seeing uh, happening with uh, economic indicators. The inversion curve, the yield curve is still inverted. It has to uninvert. And typically when it does, there's a recession. That's still probably four to six, within a four to six month window for when that has always happened 100% of the time. The leading economic indicators, if they've gone down more than 12 months in a row and and now they're down 20, 100% 100% of the time so far has ended in recession uh, within 24 months. Now, maybe we can kick that down the road and kind of extend that window uh, to 26 or 28 months. But I don't think it's going to be much more than uh, it's not. It, it's got to happen this year or history really did change. And, you know, the most dangerous words in the market or most dangerous investing words are it's different this time or this right. time is different to put them in any order. But those are the same words. If we think it's going to be different this time, you know, we've got we're delusional and we might uh, we could very well get lucky. But it's not smart, I think, to go against something that's happened eight or 10 times in the last 60 years or so, and with 100% a certain finish rate or finish scenario, and expect that it's not going to end that way just because people on the news say it is. By the way, when Janet Yellen says the economy is good, you remember when uh, the last time she said the economy was good, actually two times. One was, oh, it's just a transitory inflation. That was two years ago before 2022 crash. Yeah. And she's, that's just a minute. We're just going to raise interest rates a couple of times. It'll be over and you'll see the economy's doing great. We're in great shape. And we weren't. And then what, a year later, she's going, gosh, I don't know. I, I think nobody really saw this coming. Nobody really knew how bad the inflation was really going to be. Really? Well, everybody who knows when you print $30 trillion and create debt and pump it into the economy and you have this artificial 
extra money sitting around that it's going to cause inflation eventually, especially if there's any indication of supply chain shortages, which happen, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, any economist should know that. How in the world, or any person that's just been to college should know that, or any person that's even read the newspaper should know that. How in the world is it that the Secretary of Treasury, who used to be the Fed chairman, wouldn't know that? Speaking of Fed chairman, remember in 08, she was the Fed chairman, and that was in 07 and 08 when the market was crashing because of the bank crisis. She says, oh, this banking crisis is not as bad as we think. You know, we're going to bail the banks out. It'll be all fine. We might have a soft landing, but that'll be the worst it'll get. Was it a soft landing? No way. Every time somebody in the Fed says soft landing or oh, it's just a short-term transitory, whatever. Every time they poo-poo it as if it's nothing, but they say that there's something, it's just going to be minor, it always ends up major. And it always ends up after there's a sense of complacency when everybody believes that it can't happen. And uh, that's when it does. So the inflection point is when everybody's optimistic, nothing bad can happen, the market's going to the moon, let's jump in. Everybody who's not in is going to get in saying, I can't miss out any longer. They got fear of missing out. They already missed out on the 20% uptick last year, the last 10 or 15% in the last month or two. Uh, and they're saying, I can't not get in this, man. I've just missed the last 20 or 30. I'm not in the market. I got to get in, got to get in. Well, it can go down just as fast. So you know, I would say deal with a lot of caution. There is no breadth in the market. There is no support fundamentally of what's happening to be happening. And honestly, I'm really happy that bonds are around you know, 5% on short term and you know, 4% on longer term bonds. And you know, CDs are paying decent interest. I think we can at least sit out this weird cycle and kind of wait till earnings season's finished, wait till the uh, reset with all these bank loans that got basically uh, supported and bought out and bought up by the Fed last year that come due in March and see what the banking uh, situation looks like in a month, you know, and then see if uh, there's some sense of recovery or not, or maybe there'd be a nice little market sell-off where it'll give us opportunities to buy in and get the next leg up. But I think right now the market's crazy. I think the earnings have not supported it. I have no idea why it's where it is. We're talking with Jeff Hogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management here in Tucson and Mesa. We've been talking about current events, specifically earnings season is upon us here, and we touched a little bit on AI and unemployment. Again, if you'd like to talk with Jeff about your individual situation and how these economic events affect you and your journey towards retirement, we are offering a retirement roadmap at no cost and no obligation for you to sit down with Jeff and ask your individual questions. You can get yours by calling 520-780-9059, and you can do it this weekend if you want. Simply leave your information. Shelly will give you a call back on Monday and set up an appointment to talk with Jeff. Once again, that number, 520-780-9059, totally complimentary. No cost, no obligation. It's not going to cost you a dime. This one call, I think, really could make all the difference. So take advantage of this opportunity today. 520-780-9059. You can also request your plan online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, one of the big investment firms issued its outlook for 2024, and one of the highlights here at the top was they're figuring that inflation will likely settle. It's not going to move a great deal in one way or another. However, even though it is down in the 3% range right now, you should still hedge against it. How do you feel about that, and what tools would you use to hedge against inflation? Well, I, th- I think the Fed, just to, to counter that argument, I think J.P. Morgan uh, you know, likes the idea that the Fed is uh, claiming to lower interest rates and uh, you know, kind of go in step with what's already being kind of a reduction in interest. And maybe we do have some sort of a kind of a rolling recession where, you know, the middle class isn't spending quite as much. So it's kind of settling things in where there isn't that demand issue that's causing a lot of that inflation. But if they have to print money to bail out banks on all these uh, commercial loans that are coming due, uh, mostly commercial loans coming due in March, uh, and they have to uh, print money, I think that that's going to kind of blow that argument up that there will be inflation created. And that could uh, react one or two ways. It could uh, send the market shooting to the moon 
moon again, or it could ring a bell, a voice of reason to the market saying, uh-oh, you know, things are not good. Inflation is going to double or triple. Inflation is going to have to go up. We better just sell off and take our profits. And that might be when the sell-off starts. If we can somehow get around it, and again, that's only if it's different this time, the most dangerous and basically so far never been true words in uh, uh, history of the markets. You know, you've got good interest rates right now. And if, it, and if it's true, you know, equities are a little overpriced. Most smart money aren't buying equities, but they are happy to lock in a 4% interest rate on a 10-year note. You know, it's interesting, a lot of people in the billionaire class or the big hedge fund managers or people that like these yields that are probably as, you know, even Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan has said that uh, bonds are more competitive with stock. The rate, you know, kind of has run its course. They don't think there's going to be any rate hikes. Some people do. And I'm one of them that think it can happen. I'm not going to say it will, but I think it... It might have to if they try to bail out the banks and then have to respond with more rate hikes in the future, if not uh, even sooner. Uh, the inflation numbers came in, you know, better than what I expected, and maybe they're a little fudged because, um, you know, gas was down and they haven't, you know, included a lot of things out that I think are really affecting inflation. But bottom line is the numbers look good. It supports the idea that that the Fed doesn't have to raise interest rates anymore. So it might be as good as you can get it right now. So if you want to lock in long-term interest rate, great, go do that. Do that in bonds. At least you get something that'll keep ahead of, if you can get a 4% bond for the next 10 years and inflation really does go down to 2%, you're keeping ahead of inflation. And for people that like safe money, that's a great idea. Now, insurance companies are able to uh, buy at discounts, buy on a scale that uh, is much better than you or I can buy on. And uh, so I like the idea that, you know, five and 10 year annuities, which are just like long-term CDs might also be another option where you can lock in even a higher rate at between five and 6% for five to 10 years. Right now that's still available. But I do think just like JP Morgan thinks is those days are going to be numbered and uh, these opportunities are going to dwindle. So again, lock in four to 6% is not going to be a bad deal if you consider where the equities are so overpriced that if they do settle back to some sort of sense of normality, uh, you might be happy to get the two or 3% average dividend or get kind of a flat, kind of a lost decade over the next 10 years. If you look at what history shows, where the stock market is valued right now, even if you look at forward earnings, not just current earnings, but forward earnings, which are pie in the sky hopeful that hasn't even happened yet. They had forward earnings uh, estimated much higher a year ago for now, but they keep revising them down every quarter so they really haven't manifest themselves. I don't think they're going to manifest themselves. And that's the only way that the Fed can keep interest rates at a reasonably low level without raising them. If earnings keep going up, it'll be inflationary and the Fed will have to raise interest rates. It's not going to look good. So again, back to the argument that JP Morgan thinks that equities are a march to new highs. You know, AI probably is a game changer. It's probably going to make a, a big difference. It's going to keep, I mean, the hype is going to keep buyers invested, but at the same time, there's going to probably be a lot of shakeout based on the value. You know, we might see kind of a flat and choppy market the next few years. We might get a nice little push during the election, but again, you might be, might be well off locking in those longer interest rates. If you're listening right now and you're thinking to yourself, I want to get in and sit down and talk with Jeff because I'm really unsettled about what's going on in the economy with inflation, what's going on with interest rates. I mean, what's going on with really everything, the presidential election, how it could affect your portfolio. Well, I've got some good news. You can sit down with Jeff, get your questions answered at no cost and no obligation. Once again, that number to get your no cost, no obligation retirement roadmap, 520-780-9059. 
Again, it's not going to cost you a dime. It's just an opportunity for you to sit down on a one-on-one basis. Ask Jeff your questions. Get the answers that you need to put you on the path to a confident retirement. Again, there's no obligation whatsoever for this. Call 520-780-9059. Do it today. You can leave your information. Shelly will give you a call back on Monday. Find a convenient time for you and Jeff to talk. You can also find out more about the firm and request your consultation online at premret.com. That's P-R-E-M-R-E-T dot com. If you're just joining us, you've missed any part of the show. Remember, we're also a podcast. Simply go to wherever you get your podcasts, search for Premier Retirement with Jeff Fogan. You'll find this show and many of our past shows so you can stay on top of your wealth and your journey towards a successful retirement. Jeff, we're going to take a quick break and we come back. We've got listener questions for you. We'll also continue to talk about current events. We'll talk a little bit about mortgage rates and short-term fixed interest, that sort of thing. All that and more when our show continues here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. You can't start a trip you've never taken without a plan. And you can't start your retirement journey without a comprehensive plan to get there safely. To request your no-cost Premier Retirement Roadmap, call 580-780-9059 or request it online at premret.com. Now back to more Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan and Jeff Shea. We're so glad you could join us here for Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management in Tucson and Mesa. I want to remind you we're on about four times a week, Saturdays at 7 a.m., also 9 a.m. and 1 p.m. You can also hear us on Sundays at 11 a.m. And if that's not enough for you, you can always hear us on the podcast. Simply go to wherever you get your podcast. Search for Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan. You'll find this show and all of our past shows. You can also Google that, Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan, and I'm sure you will find a place that plays our show and you can hear it on your schedule. Okay, Jeff, as uh, every week we do listener questions, we're going to kick it off with a short one from Arthur, who's listening to us in Tucson. And Arthur writes, I'm 65 years old with $750,000 in an IRA. I'm currently taking Social Security. Is it too late for a Roth conversion? Absolutely not. In fact, uh, if you just retired recently, you know, maybe you'd waited to age 65 to get on Medicare and Take your Social Security now that you're not working. You've got some money in an IRA. When you were working, maybe you're making six figures. I don't know what you're making. Let's just say you're making enough to be in a 25 or higher tax bracket, which currently is 22%. But now with Social Security being your only income, now maybe you've got thirty or $40,000 in income and you're in the 12 bracket or lower if you're married, even uh, you know better tax bracket. So it may be really smart for you to load up whatever tax bracket you're in. I kind of hesitate going into the 20s if you can be in the 10 and 15 bracket or the you know, the 12-ish bracket for now. But, you know, honestly, if you're married, you can go up to almost 400000 in total income and still be paying tax at 25% right now. And by the way, there is no limit to conversion. The deal is you just have to pay tax on the money the year you convert it. Now, by the way, I would not convert, if you have only $750,000 and let's say you converted two hundred fifty of it and uh, you're going to pay 60000 in taxes on it, don't pay it out of the two fifty from the Roth you just converted. Pay it out of savings in your bank. I hope you have that. If you don't, you're actually cannibalizing the future uh, tax-free growth. And the whole benefit of doing a Roth conversion would be to convert as much as you can, keep all the converted amount into that tax-free account so that in the future, any any growth is tax-free and anything you take out is tax-free. Even your heirs get it passed out to them tax-free. They do have to take it over a 10-year period of time, but they can dilly-dally as long as they want to and let all the growth that they can go tax-free before they have to pull it out too. So it's not going to burden them with a big taxes if you're planning on just leaving it to somebody. 
Now, another option coming back here, you know, if you don't have those assets to spend on uh, or out of your bank or maybe non-IRA type funds to pay the taxes, maybe you take a little smaller approach. Maybe you take a 10-year approach where you pull maybe sixty or $70,000 out of it per year and only pay 10 or 15% taxes. That would hurt that Roth conversion a lot less and would keep it as, you know, somewhat efficient if you could. Now, I also don't know how much out of that IRA you're going to have to be using to spend or live on. You might have a certain nut you want to hit that's higher than the Social Security you're collecting. So again, in, in order to see the big picture, we really need to do a, a complete plan, look at all your income sources, look at all your potential assets that can, can, can be converted to income sources or sold off as you get older. Maybe it's downsizing a house. Maybe it's selling some rental properties. Maybe it's selling a collection of cars. You know, whatever. You've got other assets that might be non-IRA assets that you could add into the mix. Or do you want to pull some IRA assets out and spend it all and, you know, go high on the hog for 10 years? Your goal is your goal. You can, I might not think that's a responsible approach, but if that's your goal, let's figure out a plan that utilizes the assets you have, the incomes that you know you have, and create additional income from those assets that's tax efficient. And it might be through a Roth conversion and then maybe even a tax-free income stream that you create. In fact, speaking of tax-free income streams, something I like generally even better if you're young and healthy, and I say anything anything under 70 is probably a good age to consider this if you're healthy. And that is a LERP, life insurance retirement plans, where unlike a Roth, where you get to take the money out tax-free, the Roth, you actually take the money out tax-free. You actually take the money out. And so that money is no longer, once you've spent it, that money is no longer in there growing. On Alert, you can use a life insurance savings account, basically, that grows at a reasonable rate of return. I believe it would, in really no viable length of time, would underperform a CD rate. And it may not beat the market, but consider this, it's tax-free money with some principal guarantee on your account balance and, you know, reasonable rate of return. But what if you don't ever have to pull the money out when you use money from that account? You don't use money from that account. You actually borrow against that account and it continues to grow and grow and grow. And as long as that account's growing, you can continue to borrow more and more every year and still end up leaving your heirs maybe more than what you started with in the first place. Or you can just drive it all the way down to the ground and live on a whole bunch of tax-free money, maybe somewhere between two and three times what you put in. If you converted, let's just say $500,000 over the next five years into uh, like 100,000 a year for five years, that's kind of a common plan that a lot of people in your situation uh, you know, have done here. And then you've got you know, maybe 30 or $40,000 a year you can pull out in tax-free income. Well, if all you've got is, you know, thirty or forty thousand in Social Security and another thirty or forty thousand dollars in tax-free income, you may be in a zero percent tax bracket because that income from the LERP doesn't show up anywhere in your tax return. It doesn't show up on provisional income and cause your Social Security to be taxed at a higher rate. Whereas Roth conversions or Roth monies, they are ten ninety-nine. It's just zero tax. It's still considered provisional income. If you don't believe me, take a big Roth conversion and find out how much you pay for your Medicare premiums. It is considered income, even though it's tax-free. It's considered income, and it will. Generally generate a higher IRMA penalty. In other words, your Medicare insurance will go from about 170 a month. Uh, it could double or triple or quadruple that depending on how much extra income you show. And it could even be from a Roth. It could even be from a sale of a property that you sold that isn't really anything other than something you're going to roll into an investment that can pay you an income because you're no longer getting rents. But the IRS and Medicare, they don't really care about that. They just say, oh, well, you know, it showed up on your tax return. So we got to consider it as a, you know, some sort of an adjusted or modified adjusted gross income, whereas LERP money doesn't. So, you know, you've got a great question as far as uh, Roth conversions go. A lot of people are told that if you make too much money or if you're too old, if you're not putting more money in, you can't convert anymore. That's wrong. You can convert anytime. You just need to be willing to pay the taxes. And if you want to look at options, you might want to just stack a alert next to a Roth with reasonable rate of return in both cases and just see what one lasts longer and does the job that you want it to do. 
not to mention the LERP, life insurance retirement plan. I know life insurance doesn't sound like an investment, and it, it, it is. It's just, it's like a cash-free money machine. It's kind of like your tax-free bank. It's different than an investment. It doesn't grow or look like an investment, but the amount you stuff into it creates a death benefit. That death benefit is tax-free. You can spend that death benefit while you live. In fact, if you get sick and have nursing home care needs in the future, or you get terminally ill and want one just big last party bash on your way out, you can actually cash in your death benefit early and use it for your health care or your terminal illness or for just terminal illness withdrawal to make your life comfortable in the last days. You don't have to wait to die to get that million or whatever it is in, in life insurance. So again, consider more than just Roth conversions. I think when we just deal with the typical brokerage industry, all they know is traditional IRA, Roth and stocks, bonds and cash. That's it. That's portfolio management. And for them to call themselves fiduciary sometimes is beyond me. But I think a more comprehensive look at your options, your tax situation, your income sources, how much tax you're paying on your Social Security, how much you're paying for your Medicare premiums and stuff is all things that you ought to take into consideration as well. So, you know, don't forget to look at a more broad approach, a more comprehensive approach before you uh, embark down that uh, Roth conversion road. Arthur, thanks for listening to us. And of course, we'll send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Next question, Jeff, is Charles in Silvano. And he writes, my wife died in 2022. We were together for 52 years. I asked our bank to have her IRA money transferred to me as her sole beneficiary on the account and as a surviving spouse. A bank representative of their IRA department told me which form to fill out and how to do it. My wife's 2022 required minimum distribution was paid to my checking account at the same bank. The balance was then put in a new account with the ownership description shown as an inherited IRA. Well, time passed and I took RMDs for her account in my own IRA. But to my surprise, the RMD from the inherited IRA was roughly double the amount I received from my IRA, although the amounts in both accounts were approximately the same. I discovered through research that as my wife's sole beneficiary and surviving spouse, I should have not filled out the form for an inherited IRA, but instead I should have rolled it over into my IRA. I asked to have the RMD deposit reversed and reissued at the lower correct amount. However, my bank said that the IRA ownership description cannot be changed now, and I have to take the larger amount. I feel like a victim. Should I feel like a victim? And what can I do about it, if anything? Well, I think uh, it might be a, uh, yeah, I think, first of all, you need to change banks because they've got incompetent people working there. Uh, that is a, a big faux pas. Right. Even the form that they helped you fill out would have probably had a checkbox where it could have said, are you a spouse? They would have had a check a box that said, this is a non-spousal inherited IRA, and obviously she's a spouse. She must also, in order for her to have twice the RMD, she would have to have either twice the money in the account, or she must have to be somewhere between 15 and 20 years older than you are to have that age bracket even compute to that level. So there's some bad stuff going on on several fronts. It wouldn't surprise me if it's a very big, very uh, well-known bank that does that because honestly, they can't hire enough competent people to deal with all the stuff that they deal with. Mostly the regional small banks typically have an expert in there that does a little bit better, but not always. The fact is, is this is a bad deal. I think you may have to have a CPA help and maybe you get some sort of a letter from the IRS saying you can change it back because you weren't given that opportunity. You know, there's opportunities sometimes when you make a you know a mistake on an RMD where the first year you forget to take it, they actually give you one year to fix it and say, oh, well, we'll give you a pass this time. Just don't do it again. Sometimes if you have a one-time bill or a Roth conversion or a sale of a 
single property, you can also talk them out of those Medicare premium increases if it's a one-time event or if it's a hardship event and things like that. So, you know, the IRS isn't always as ruthless as uh, they're made out to be, although uh, I don't have any friends there, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> they will, you know, in some cases kind of listen to a, you know, your complaint or say, hey, you know, I got wronged here. This I was told this would happen. I don't think the bank is going to go out of their way to solve the problem. They're going to tell you exactly what they did because they don't want to go through the trouble, up went up a can of worms, maybe even get audited themselves or get fined for doing something wrong. I don't know if that would even come down to it because I think the, the banks are coddled by the government as well as the IRS is. So I don't know what you can do other than I wish there was a program we had to fix bank problems. If so, we'd be, we'd be so buried, I wouldn't have time to help anybody, unfortunately, do it the right way. So we don't have that. But I think maybe if you have a good tax guy, you can say, hey, this was done wrong. How can I recharacterize that account from a, an actual inherited IRA non-spousal to a spousal? And I think, honestly, a letter would let you do that. But I would definitely, with the, whatever response you get, I would move it to a different institution where you can set it up the correct way. Charles, we appreciate you listening to us, and good luck with your problem. Of course, we'll send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Jeff, our next question is from Deborah, listening to us in Houghton. And Deborah says, I've been in a committed long-term relationship for 14 years. My partner does not want to marry and believes he's taking care of me legally and financially should he precede me in death. He's a loving and generous partner, so I do trust him. But I know his arrangements are designed to protect himself while trying to look out for me at the same time. We're both retired. We both have our own annuities and IRAs, traditional and Roth, and we serve as partial beneficiaries on these investments. He has siblings, no children. Well, I do have children and grandchildren. His personal property, including a valuable home, is in a revocable trust with me as sole beneficiary. I'm not on the deed of our home. The question is related to the trust. What happens after he passes and what tax consequences will I be dealing with once ownership of the house passes to me? Is this still an inherited property? How will long-term capital gains work? I already know that the property taxes will be adjusted based on the home's value at the time of the transfer. What other financial or legal issues do I need to be prepared for, assuming, of course, that I should outlive him? Well, I think it depends if you're the trustee on the trust or not. If the trustee of the trust is his siblings and not a child, then they're supposed to give you that house out of the trust. The trustee is only as good as you can trust that person. So I would hope that you're at least a co-trustee and that that house that is left to you in that can be transferred to your name or put into your own trust for your heirs eventually. You can also actually file what's called a life estate, which wouldn't give you the house, but at least uh, you can actually record that and it would provide some buffer for you at least to stay there till you pass away. But you want to own the house. That's kind of what he's saying. He's taking care of you by giving you some assets and uh, at least the, a, a very nice home. So uh, you don't have to be on the deed. That would actually be considered a gift right now. I would take the uh, step up and basis on an inheritance as long as that rule still persists. And that may be gone by the time he passes. But bottom line is just like you get a step up basis and you're going to have to have everything revalued for everything for taxes to valuation purposes when you inherited it, you know, it, it becomes your house. But I don't see really anything else other than just make sure that you're in a place where you have control over that distribution of that house to you, you know, to be covered. It sounds like you have all your other assets, uh, the type of assets that carry beneficiaries, and you can put the beneficiaries uh, to whoever you want. And you've done that. So yeah, I think by and large, you've done uh, all of it probably as, as well as you can if you're not planning on getting married and have that, you know, spousal assumption or automatic rollover and, and transfer of uh, ownership on death because you're joint tenants with writer's survivorship. But you, I mean, you can still accomplish the same thing doing what you're doing. But I would just make sure that you're in a good place where it can't be taken from you or changed after the fact. Deborah, thanks for that question. Of course, we'll send you out Jeff's book, Retirement the Road Ahead. 
If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the air, you can get it to us by going to the website, primret.com, emailing it to us using the contact form. And again, if we do use it on the air, you'll get Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. You're listening to Premier Retirement with Jeff Hogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management here in Tucson. And if you have questions like our listeners have sent in to us, you want to sit down with Jeff, get the answers that you need to put you on a path towards a prosperous retirement. Again, we're offering this no-cost, no-obligation retirement roadmap. Again, not going to cost you a dime. The number to get it, 520-780-9059. You can call that number this weekend if you want. Leave your name, your telephone number. Shelly will give you a call back on Monday, set you up with an appointment with Jeff to get the questions answered that you need, as I said, to put you on a path towards a prosperous retirement, maybe save you from making some mistakes like some of these people have made that cannot be undone. Once again, the number 520-780-9059. No cost, no obligation, no judgment. You can also request your complimentary retirement roadmap online by going to premret.com. That is P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, I want to get back to some of the things that J.P. Morgan talked about in their outlook for 2024 and just a few of the highlights here. They were talking about short-term interest rates, fixed interest 5% or so, and then long-term, the S&P 500 versus fixed. What is your take on what they're talking about here? Well, it just depends on if you're talking about like the typical, uh, based on the prices of uh, stocks going up, the dividend yield actually goes down. So it's, you know, I'm sure it's under three by now average dividend yield on stocks. Some people buy stocks and hold. They don't care how much the stocks are up or down. They just like the dividend. Well, those dividends don't always pay the same depending on you know how a company's doing. I mean, we've talked about you know, a lot of companies who haven't even gone through the long list, but how many companies are laying off people and kind of you know, retreating into, you know, defense mode and may or may not be able to pay those yields for very long. We also know that as the uh, prices of stock go up, not only do the yields go down, but it also gives us a, a good chance that the pricing could change also with sell-offs and more of a corrective uh, pressures in the future. So people are looking at fixed interest as being an option. And you know what, I'd just as soon lock in 4%. If the stock market, every time it gets to where the, the present price earnings ratio is in the 30 range, like it is right now, you know, the future 10 year outlook is between one and three or 4% max over the next 10 years because of just, you know, kind of corrective periods. The AI hype, yeah, it's going to throw some things into uh, high gear. But remember what happened in the dot coms, you know, for a few years in the late 90s, the, the dot coms grew into a big bubble that popped and it took, you know, seven or eight years before it actually got back to even. Internet's here to stay. Yeah, there was a few uh, companies that became the cream that rise to the top and they're still there. And there's going to be the same thing with AI. Unfortunately, I think it's going to be the same companies that are already there that kind of maintain those strong dominant positions. I don't know how many new companies there will be, but I think there's going to be a lot of stuff shaken loose over the next several years. And I think we're going to see that choppy road that we've seen, you know, like in the last decade of 2000, 2010, based on where we are in the market. So, you know, one option and, you know, the billionaire money, people like Jeff Gunlack, who I've uh, quoted before, you know, billionaire, you know, bond trader, and he's uh, he manages billions for other billionaires and uh, hedge funds and and smart people with a lot of money that don't want to lose it, and they're happy buying three and a half percent bonds right now because as the yields go down, the actual bond values will increase, and you know they're happy to make eight or ten percent on bonds this year and get three or four percent guaranteed going forward in a much safer place where they can kind of time back into the market when when there's some big sell-offs ahead. So right now the you know, most of the smart money is not buying into the stock. The only smart money I call smart money 
insider money. The only smart money is buying stocks are the ones that, like the banks that have tons of extra QE cash, basically, that the the Fed's given them. Of course, the Fed hasn't given the general public or companies in general any of that QE money, quantitative easing or free printed money. So the, the banks are kind of rallying, they're kind of cheerleading, they're buying a lot of this stuff. But most of the, the big hedge funds seem to be a little bit leery. Day traders love this market. Uh, there's a lot of looky-loos that are still skeptical about the market that have been on the sidelines for a while that are finally starting to get in. And that's what the that's what the big market makers want. They want to get them in. And uh, they're going to end up selling into that strength and they're going to take the profits and they're going to leave the little guys hanging. And that's why, you know, keep on saying, you know, let's, let's just be careful. So, you know, I, I think what J.P. Morgan's saying is, you know, a lot of these rich people, you know, the fact that there's not a whole lot of cash left out there other than what the banks themselves have, which might dry up as they refinance some of these loans that are coming due starting in March. You know, what are you going to do? Um, there's not going to be a lot of money to go into equities, perhaps, and it might be really nice to get a uh, nice 4% rate of return and a pretty steady value of your portfolio that has a better tendency to go up in uh, market corrections and uh, interest rates reductions in order to kind of solve the problems that are coming. So I, I think the smart money is, is leaning that way. I like to be on the side of smart money. I hate worse than anybody to missing out on the upside. I mean, you know, in retrospect, I can look back and say, gosh, I wish I would have, man. I, who would have known that without any earnings fundamentals or anything other than just people pumping, getting ready to dump, is pumping up getting ready to dump at any time. These stocks up, I mean, when do you get on the train and when do you get off? I mean, it's still a dangerous ride, but yeah, I wish I could, you know, have a better crystal ball. I, I'd have a really good one looking backwards, but nobody does in the future. All we can do is say, hey, what looks like a good probability based on history? I'm a historian. I look at things. History says we're still going to end this thing in a recession. History says it's not going to probably be a soft landing, probably 75% chance it's going to be a little harsher than soft. And there's only a 25% chance we get out of it. I'm not going to go, oh man, I can't believe we didn't get out of it. I would be surprised if that 25% prevails. That's actually a pretty good number. Uh, shoot, if you're a 250 batter in major leagues, you can actually still keep your place on the roster, yeah. and, you know, as long as you can catch or throw. But, uh, you know, in, in the market, 25%, I don't want to bet on that with scared money or money I need to live on. I mean, if it's if, if there's about a 75% chance it's going to end uh, like history says it will with 100% certainty in the past going forward, I think it'll still be there. So so the argument about locking up money for a long term at the yields that we're getting right now, maybe the 4 or 5% range if you can, even 5 or 6 uh, in, uh, insurance companies can leverage up that interest and do a little bit better for you than even a bank or uh, buying a uh, CD or just buying a treasury direct from the uh, treasury department or from your bank. You can do a little better with insurance companies that will secure the principal, give you access to the interest or a certain percentage of that contract over a period of time. But it's like a long-term CD that you can lock in better than 4%, better than 5% still. And uh, those yields are tempting given the fact that the pricing of stock is so high that it's really unlikely that dividends are going to go up higher than that unless you invest at today's prices. Your yields might go up, but your stock portfolio will go down 30 or 40, maybe even 50% in order to do it. So that's why the big money who doesn't really want to lose their billions or want to lose their millions is really happy getting 4 or 5% in the current interest rates. And I think that's uh, kind of the, the name of the game right now, given all the uncertainty in the market and the, the financial situation. Even if the Fed, the Treasury, White House, and everybody else who's rallying this uh, market for an election year uh, says differently, it's just, I just don't think it's going to be different this time. You need to be careful. Jeff, another thing that J.P. Morgan points out is uh, contained credit stress. Investors should consider capitalizing on stressed real estate and private credit. What's your opinion? 
Well, I think so. I don't think there's a lot of stress real estate yet, but there will be. You know, Warren Buffett has sold about $200 billion of his stock. And one of the things that I know he bought was a lot of either guaranteed preferreds and some stressed credit back in the 08 crash when banks melted down because they were overvaluing everything and they had a reset on all their credit. So there was, uh, you could buy, you know, mortgages and stuff at 30, 40, and 50% on the dollar and, you know, get an equivalent, even on a three to 5% mortgage or a 6% mortgage, if you're buying at half price, you're making 10 or 12% on that money. So, you know, some of the smart money is got cash raised for those opportunities to jump into uh, real estate. You can either buy notes, you can buy portfolios of notes if you're, you know, have enough money to just go straight to the bank, or you can buy portfolios where there are uh, ETFs and things that you can get ready to purchase. I think right now we're a little premature. Uh, however, there's private credit. I mean, I use that personally. I mean, I have a lot of private credit loans where I have a lot of equity in a property. Somebody can't get a loan at the bank. I'd be happy to loan, or, or a builder wants to fix up a house. I'll, I'll loan money at 10% and 12% because it's more than I'd get on my interest. And, you know, those things are something you, you can look for in the market. There's a lot of uh, people that actually have funds that can do that. I can't offer them as a security because I'm registered, you know, as a RIA, but that's something you could look for. But you can also buy these things in ETFs. You can buy private credit. If you have a million dollar plus uh, net worth, we have private equity funds that invest in a variety of things. You know, five or 10% might only be in real estate. They could have short-term loans to diamond brokers. They could have basically factor uh, lawsuit settlements and pay off a victim of a, a crime or a lawsuit, you know, winner early at a discounted rate in order to get the uh, final fees later. There's all kinds of ways private equity maneuvers funds to make more money than you can make on your own. Eight to 10% is not unreal, but you have to qualify to get those things. Typically, you have to have a billion dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars to, you know, talk about that. But you know, as a, a group, the, the group that I belong to, you know, has $20 billion just in the securities market and probably 100, depending on, uh, you know, how you look at it in, in insurance type or income products. So we have a lot of clout and we can go and say, hey, make us a ticker so we can access private equity. You know, even if you only have a few hundred thousand or a few million, you don't have to have the tens of millions it takes you usually to play. We can actually pool all that and uh, play the private uh, credit game and, and make more money as well. That's another uh, good option to hedge against the equity, the potential equity sell-off if you're a little bit worried about uh, the things that I've been talking about. Jeff, if our listeners are looking for a financial advisor who understands the market and the economy and uh, understands all the things that you've been talking about and wants somebody who has a lot of tools in the toolbox again, highly encourage you to call Jeff there at Premier Retirement and get your no-cost, no-obligation financial review. It's the Retirement Roadmap. Again, no cost, no obligation. That number, 520-780-9059. Call it this weekend, 520-780-9059. You can also find us online at premred.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, out of time for this week. Thank you for your time, but thanks to all of our listeners for joining us. For Jeff Fogan, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Premier Retirement here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. Investment advisory services provided through Premier Wealth Advisors, LLC, an Arizona state registered investment advisor. Securities transactions are placed through TD Ameritrade. Insurance and annuity products are offered through Premier Advantage, Inc., DBA Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Any reference to protection, safety, or lifetime income generally refer to fixed insurance products. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims paying abilities of the insurance carrier. The show is intended for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as advice or recommendations. Due to show format, accuracy, and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Premier Retirement and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice and may only conduct business with residents of states and jurisdictions where they're properly registered.